Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and I am all alone in the Dork Cave today, which is sad. Um, unfortunately, my co-dorks could not make it out to the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia to have a conversation with Cameron Yates, and that is a real bummer. But what is not a bummer is the conversation itself. Uh, Cameron Yates is a fascinating documentarian. His new film, Chef Flynn, follows the uh, rising career of young Flynn McGarry, who was once called the Justin Bieber of food. The film is currently streaming on demand in digital HD. If you're not lucky enough to have an Alamo Drafthouse near you playing it, it is well worth hunting it down on whatever your preferred streaming service is. At the start of the film, you will see that Flynn is just 10 years old and he has transformed his mother's kitchen into a... Uh, culinary paradise uh, where he was taking in friends and family to uh, experience his wizardry and that grew into a, a makeshift restaurant which then grew into a series of pop-up restaurants and Flynn has basically taken over the culinary world to some controversy you know there's because he's so young the word gimmick gets thrown around a lot and like does this kid actually have what it takes to compete in the world of uh, culinary expertise. You know, I'll let you be the judge. What's great about the film itself is that Cameron Yates was invited into Flynn's home. Uh, he had full access to Flynn himself, of course, and to his family, but also this treasure trove of footage that his filmmaker mom had been documenting herself since his birth. And so you get this really large canvas of Flynn McGarry's life presented to you within this documentary. And uh, it's it's a trip. And if you are someone like myself who dives into the Great British Bake Off and nailed it and those kinds of Netflix cooking shows and what have you, uh, Chef Flynn is really going to be appealing. But even if you are not a foodie, the psychology on display in Chef Flynn is fascinating unto itself. I, I, I yeah, I, I recommend the movie. I highly recommend the film, and I am very thankful to Andy Garrison over at the Alamo Draft House for inviting me over to chat with Cameron. And yeah, I'm of course thankful to Cameron for letting me have this conversation as well. So let's get to it. Let's dive into the conversation, and I will meet you back on the other side. <laughs> And we are back in the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester Virginia projection booth, my favorite projection booth to stock uh, in the northern Virginia area. And we are joined by documentarian Cameron Yates. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's kind of an incredible room to be in. It is an incredible room to be in. Every time I come here, I'm in awe of the carpet and the many posters wild selection. You are welcome. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> I was looking right at you for that. Um, so I guess where I wanted to start was watching the documentary. It's clear that, you know, Flynn's mom had lots of footage to begin with before you were, were ever involved. How did you, 
begin to assemble that footage? You know, where did you determine where the beginning of your narrative was? How, like, yeah. how do you no, put this together? I mean, it's an incredible question. And it goes back about, I'd say, almost six, seven years now. So, um, you know, when I first read about Flynn's story in The New Yorker, there was a little piece called Prodigy. That's where you came in? That's where I came okay. in, yeah. So that, I want to say that was 2012. Um, actually, my father, who's here today, had a little bit to do. He handed me the piece. He's always kind of sending huh. me articles. that You might be interested in making a film about this, and usually... You know, I'll see you down the road. But this one was fascinating. It was about this kid who'd been doing, you know, pop-up uh, supper clubs out of his mom's living room and foraging the neighbors' backyards, and it just had all these elements that I was really interested in. Um, but especially the mother, like Meg, she just had. Uh, I think it, I don't know if I mentioned that she she'd filmed him yet, but I went online and started researching, and I found these videos that she created. Um, and she had a whole YouTube channel called Dining with Flynn. And, and were, he had a Twitter feed already at that he point. He had a Twitter feed, a website, a, a small cookbook. His sister had a blog called The Sister of a Culinary Prodigy, which oh, was wow. kind of hilarious. So I was like, oh, the whole family's invested in really interesting ways. His father was a photographer. They all seemed like artists, which I thought was also cool that they, they sort of you know, came around him in this way. But, so, but, but his mother, so I went on and checked out the, her, her short films that she'd made. And the first one sort of started out feeling like home videos that she'd been filming with him, um, some of his first meals. And then they kind of moved into like him doing cooking shows and, and kind of creating dishes. And then they quickly escalated into him putting on these meals in this restaurant in Beverly Hills. Um, but she always put music over it. And occasionally you'd hear her voice in the background. But I knew immediately that I wanted... First of all, she'd been shooting obsessively for years. I just had a feeling. And I also just wanted to see the outtakes, like the things that weren't included in her short film. So mm-hmm. when I reached out to her, I had a feeling that there was this, this trove of material. Um, but it took a while to get access to that. And, I mean, the first time I approached them in 2012, we, we met and we had a meal in L.A. And it was his mother, sister, and Flynn. And he, you know, he took over, he, he ordered for the whole table, and they sort of had this back and forth. And, and that's what, for me, when it's, you know, I'm always fascinated by these family dynamics, but when I, when I sat down and saw them, I realized, okay, this is, these are people that I would love to, to explore. But I asked them if they wanted to do a film, and, and they said, um, no, not right now. You know, we're kind of, you know, we're thinking about possibly cooking shows or a reality show. We, we saw that your first film took about seven, eight years to make. We're kind of more interested in something coming out sooner. So we just became friends. And, and it, it almost, it was about a year before, you know, he was coming to New York and staging 11 Madison Park. Meg was also visiting. We were going to movies together. So we, for me, it was really that, like, becoming friends with them. And then all of a sudden they, they told me, oh, we're doing one of the last dinners we think at our home. Would you possibly want to come and just film this dinner? And that, that sort of started the whole filming process for me. But then the, getting the access to his mother's archives was a whole other thing. She came to New York at some point and brought all of her hard drives and all of her mini DV tapes and everything she shot over the years. And we sat down for a week and watched everything together. Hmm. And I was taking notes the entire time. And I think in a way it was really, she trusted me at that point. And it was, it was as if she was handing over the torch to me to kind of take on the documentation. Mm-hmm. But she needed to do that. And then so from that point on, she handed everything to me and didn't, didn't ever ask to see anything, you know, was kind of entrusted that with me. And I, I'm still to this day sort of the, the database for all the material, <laughs> if anything ever happened. Sure. Um, well, the impression I get from your film is that 
she's a you know she's an incredibly artistic individual herself, and Absolutely. I would imagine it would be hard for her to give over any kind of control to her son's story to you, and that must have been a hell of a conversation. Well, yeah, I mean that's always yeah that's one thing that people are always kind of yeah, interested in, and I, I think a few things. I think I came in at the right point in their life where Flynn was a li- getting a little embarrassed about his mother constantly behind him with a camera, mm-hmm. and also in these professional kitchens didn't necessarily want her there and was looking for an outsider to come in. I think she was also ready to sort of... She continued filming. Let's not get it wrong. She actually did continue filming during the during the years that I was filming, occasions where I couldn't be in L.A. She would pick up her cell phone, mm-hmm. pick up her small camera and document. But the other thing is she came from a narrative filmmaking background, a screenwriting background. Um, so she went about things in a different way and I actually think that there was never tension between us because I was coming from a more verite fly on the wall documentary filmmaker background. The, the thing that I had trouble was actually convincing, not necessarily her, but Flynn, that his mom was a character in the film. Oh, yeah. That she was, the, remember the first time I put a mic on her, and he was kind of, he looked at her a little, like, funny, kind of like, wait, why are you, why are you micing up my mother? This is, aren't you filming me? Isn't it, you know, and there was definitely that sort of back and forth, but pretty soon, he kind of gave in, and I mean, we, we witnessed him grow up from being an awkward teenager to being someone who's really in control of the restaurant, and, and I think, when I first started filming, he's like, I'd never want to see the footage of me as a young kid doing this crazy day, you know, uh-huh. somewhere goes, but now he's, he's comfortable with it. But it was definitely an evolution, for sure. And with you going there, having an idea that there is a story to be told here, but then taking so much time to convince them, and I guess also to convince yourself that you can make something out of it, was there ever a moment where... You're like, okay, I've gone this far, I have to continue, or uh, was there ever a moment where you resisted, okay, maybe they're, maybe this is, I can't deliver what they want, or what I'm interested in is not what they're interested in? Um, I'm trying to think. I, for me, I always sort of, I choose subjects and, and um, uh, people that I follow that I invest a lot of time in and know that I'm going to be there for the long term. So even if they thought I was only going to be there for the first, you know, one or two supper clubs, I think pretty soon on, they pretty soon they realized that I was actually mm-hmm. in it for the long term. So I, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but but um, it's a, for me, it's a, it's a matter of kind of like, being in there and filming and, and, and sort of then also knowing when to pull back, when to kind of ramp it up. Um, uh, we worked with three different editors over the course of six years um, and just the, the sheer amount of material that we had to go through. But the thing, I always knew that I was going to be able to, to tell the, his entire story because I had her material from the, the origins. I wasn't there for the origins, so it was daunting to come in without you know, if I, if I hadn't filmed that material, because she had filmed that. And we also knew that we wanted to, to tell the entire story um, to kind of come in and out of footage throughout the years seamlessly, mm-hmm. um, which I have to credit our editor, Hannah Buck, for, you know, being able to, to work in with all the different material. I mean, how many different cameras. Yeah, and, and, and to find specific narratives within all this footage that you have. I, exactly, exactly, yeah. So I know you, you know, you've had uh, a previous doc, you've... Uh, curated film festivals, documentarian film festivals, you know the types of docs that you appreciate. What type of influence um, cinematically are you bringing into your own, you know, carving of a work? Uh, What do you want to do? What do you not want to do when taking on a project like this? 
Sure. Well, I mean, the, so I, I grew up, I was an intern and, and production assistant for Albert Maisel's and Maisel's films um, right out of school. And actually, my producer, Lara Coxon, who produced Iris, one of his last documentaries, also, you know, obviously worked with him. And um, he always said, like, kind of, you know, film what you love uh, because you really invest yourself in it and you're going to be there for a long time. And so I, I take that very much to heart. But um, I, you know, I'm trying to think... Um, Sorry, I just lost my train. No, that's all right. <laughs> uh, wait, sorry, what was it? Well, like influence, oh, you influence know, films yeah, yeah. you've seen before, films that you you would want to, like, you want to do verite, like what type of docs are inspiring your style of verite? Absolutely. So, so yeah, so two, so two, two main inspirations for me are Albert Maisel's and, and the Maisel's Brothers and their cinema. Great Gardens is one of my absolute favorite films. Um, Steve James and and uh, Stevie mm-hmm. and um, the Hoop Dreams and the Interrupters, so I love the style of kind of being in the background and fly on the wall. But then I'm also hugely inspired by, um, you know, people can create films completely out of archival material. And I think with this project, I saw the challenge to you know that that I, again that since I wasn't there from the beginning, we were actually able to kind of create an entire you know narrative sure with using archival material well, and verite. As an audience member, I'm trying to figure out when the filmmaker <laughs> came into this timeline. It was it's generally confusing to me yeah. uh, watching it. It's impressive how you mirror you know the archival with the footage that you must have come on. But I yeah. until you told me I did not know when you came on. I know, and that's one of those things that we, there was a debate back and forth whether do we put years, do we, you know, indicate when we come in. But I, for me, I kind of wanted the, you know, wanted the viewer to just sort of completely immerse themselves in the story and not really be thinking about that too much. Um, I mean, you obviously hear his mother's voice behind the camera at times, but there, you know, his father is filming at times, his sister is filming at times. Um, yeah. Anyway, hmm. it, it was a challenge to figure out how to that that storytelling language. And so beyond seeing the story in The New Yorker and knowing, oh, well, this is odd that, that this kid exists, what was the story for you? Like, when did you decide, you know, the narrative of Chef Flynn? The story for me, in which I don't necessarily, it's hard to, to remember if I actually thought about this in the beginning. I always knew that his mother was a, a huge mm-hmm. character for me. I mean, it was really his mother and their dynamic that it was the family dynamic that I was interested in. Don't get me wrong, I love prodigies, I love food. My, the first short film I ever made is called 14 and Payroll, and it was about uh, Virginia, um, the House of Del- Pages working in the House of Delegates, mm-hmm. and it follows them for a month, two months when they're away from home. So I'm also interested in kids who find what they, you know, their passion in life at a very early age. But I think I, it wasn't until the process of making this film that I, I ultimately realized that the film is about parenting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's an interesting realization to have because my, my husband and I are about to have our first child, and it, it sort of congrats. So thank you, thank you. It kind of came about as we were finishing the film, and it's one of those things where I didn't, you know, everyone everyone goes into it. I think thinking it's about a child prodigy chef, not realizing that a huge part is really about, you know, the mother's story, you know, mm-hmm. the, the mother son story, and sort of like the you know the parenting. It's really her story as well as his story. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of a well. I think you know when I read the descriptor on IMDb or, or wherever, I start to formulate, well, you know, food docs right now are really popular. Food shows are really popular. Uh, I just completed another round of Great British Bake Off. And yeah. there is a, 
there is a version of Chef Flynn that gets lost in the process of what he does. And at first I was a little annoyed or disappointed that you didn't really fall that heavy into what he does as a, uh, as a chef, that you're really telling the narrative of the family around that. Is there a version where you went down different paths, whether it's his process or another story or... There's a version, yeah. I was always hesitant. I didn't want to go into the direction of, because we could have gone into the you know food porn and beautiful yeah. cinematography, which not to get me wrong, you know our cinematographer Paul Yee is amazing, and there's there's plenty of stuff in, towards the end. Um, but I, I didn't want to do that. For me, it ultimately, it was about the family. Um, but there was a version. Sorry, there was a version at, at different times. You know, I mean, it goes through so many different edits that you know, like. We did interview other chefs that he worked with, you know, mm-hmm. Ari Tamor of Alma in Los Angeles and Daniel Hume of, of Madison Park and his Yeah, mentors. it's not a talking like, head doc. It's not. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But we did interview that for, you know, for the film in case that, you know, we, we, we thought maybe other voices would come into play. Um, but ultimately we decided that it really was a mother and son. And I have to, oh, this is another film that kind of weirdly inspired me towards the end of it. Was um, 20th Century Women? Oh damn, yeah, yeah the great Mike movie. Mills film. Yeah, and the opening, especially the opening, of the film, the way they set up the mother and son to be like co-narrators and co-creator. I, mm. I was very much inspired by that. Mm. That's so. interesting because you don't hear that too often about narrative film influencing doc. Sometimes you hear, oh, somebody likes a doc, and then they try to bring a style of a particular documentary to a narrative, but rarely do you hear the, the opposite. Yeah, no, huh. yeah. I forgot that was actually, we, I, we, I remember we had our editor and our producer, we all watched the opening, like, a few times. So. And getting access to his dad, I mean, his dad's in the film, but not as much as the mom. Was it just simply because you felt like his story would detract from her story and his and, and Flynn's story? No, two things. So the father and the sister are, you know, kind of side characters in mm-hmm. the film. Uh, the sister was actually at, at Bard, attending Bard College for experimental film, um, so she's also in the film, but at the time that I was shooting, and, and we did interview her. Um, and, and same thing with the father. We interviewed him as well. Their voices didn't... It, it just... We couldn't figure out a way to bring them in as, as, as talking heads. And also, his father, you know, was struggling with an addiction is now completely is fine he's managing a rehabilitation center in LA um, but it's just they, they it didn't you know they weren't they weren't a part of it in the way mm-hmm. that Megan Flynn were sure yeah. uh, I imagine since she was into his story so much the sister since the sister was so interested in her brother's story and documenting her brother's story and she's a filmmaker I would imagine there's another narrative there where she you know, you you are must have been tremendous interest to her. Yeah. What you mean? Why is she? Yeah. Sorry, she didn't tell the story. Well, like, sorry, well, yeah. well, like, I, I just, I'm as we're talking, I'm starting to think about this family and how they have built um, sort of this. Not empire is too strong of a word, but this business around their son, their brother, um, and how she was creating this blog she's interested in the film and then here comes Cameron Yates to make a doc oh, yeah. on her brother yeah no totally I mean but just to be clear that none of this business nothing was making money they, yeah. they weren't making money of them. Mm-hmm. it was more to pursue their artistic endeavors and she, she was also you know filming and doing photography as she was getting into school the, the, she makes it that. Meg makes it clear in the doc that they that weren't making not, money yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no so and now you know uh, obviously you know the up, one of the updates to the film which I don't know if I should you know 
should say or not. It's up to you. Um, it's. I mean, it's if you Google Flynn McGarry, you can okay. pretty much people can check it out. But but anyway, well, now that he's he's currently involved in a business and mm-hmm. his mother is not involved, so they're mm-hmm. they're they've gone their separate, separate ways, ways. Sort their of complete relationship is, yeah. is fine. But yeah. Um, Without giving away too much. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> um, let's see. Where was my train of thought after that? Um, well, okay. I think what I'm really interested in is you spend so much time filming and getting material and sifting through the archival footage. And you, years of your life, it goes into constructing this thing. And it sounds like early on you knew you wanted it to be about this relationship between mother and son. Um, how do you maintain the narrative while you're gathering the narrative? Or do you even know the narrative until you're in edit three? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I for me, I just sort of, I mean, I, I really, as a, as a Verity filmmaker, sit back and kind of let life happen around me. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, maintaining the narrative was also maintaining relationships with Meg and Flynn, friendships throughout the process. And, um, you know, again, there's a, there's a point in the film where they sort of go off and, and do their things. And I, I, I really had to, I was interested in both of their stories at the same time, so I really had to, to be there for both. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's also, I mean, the editor is, is a huge part of, of, of creating that narrative structure over the years, so. But I, I didn't know what was gonna happen with it. I mean, I, he could have honestly, you know, mm-hmm. decided to, be a, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Because he's a teenager. Yeah, At yeah. any point, he could have removed himself from your process. Exactly, yeah. And, you know. And he was a minor when I started filming, so, yeah. you know, he had to he had to be okay with the whole thing, yeah. So. Well, what about you from, like, an, I don't know, like an ethical standpoint of, of invasion, of documentarian invasion? It's a good question. So I when I came in, I realized that he had been surrounded by lenses, surrounded by cameras his whole life. Yeah. Um, most of them from the family, and then when I, you know, the New Yorker piece came out, there was a bit of, of, of you know, media. Sorry, he, I think he was on the uh, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. I Some late that. night yeah, shows, yeah. and mm-hmm. so, but I, I, so you had to be very careful about that. A similar thing to my first film, you know, was about a New Orleans madam and her family. I was coming in where she had received a lot of press, but she was only getting sound bites out. And I think she was really excited about the idea that someone was going to be around and stick around for a while and actually document the story. So with him, so with Flynn and Meg, I just, it's, it was all about that trust and getting their trust and then just realize that I'm going to be here for the long run and I'm not just about grabbing a soundbite mm-hmm. and running. And um, did he or did anybody evolve over, like, performance-wise? You know, when you start a doc, there's a, you put on a certain face for the camera, but now you're there with you for years does it break down slowly do you have to mold that relationship or mold their performance or lack of performance yeah I mean I guess that yeah no I mean I I don't yeah I know what you mean I mean he I I just as far as him he was very shy and reserved in the beginning Mm -hmm. when I started and and I definitely saw the evolution of that to um over the course of the period um I guess what I'm saying is when I'm watching it I didn't see like a shift in how he behaved in front of the camera. He always seemed to be sort of a similar... Mm. I mean, there's clearly scenes where you catch him in a panic because that one pop-up just deteriorates. Yeah. But it seems like he's very comfortable the whole time 
with the camera there, and that's probably because of his mom or... Yeah, well, I think that's also, again, building that relationship. But I, I, what I did notice is that whenever he was in the kitchen, and yeah. whenever he's cooking, he would he would completely forget the camera, mm-hmm. and so that's we tried to, to to utilize those moments. But there were there was actually a lot of time this is over the years where I just really wanted him to open up and just kind of tell me something more personal or tell me about his story and his dreams. And um, I realized at first that it wasn't working on camera, so we we did it with microphones. You know, we, oh. would, we would do interviews with microphones off camera, and then we tried doing things. You know, kind of walking to the city. We tried a lot of different things just to kind of get him to open up, and I, I think we finally did. But it definitely took a course. It was you know, took quite a few years to, hmm. but that's just, I think that's just spending time. I mean, and, and, and becoming the first film I made too is like, at some point they were just like, Oh, you know, you're still here. There's Cameron with the camera. Is he ever going to make a film? Sure. You know, people yeah. kind of uh-huh. drop down their guard because uh-huh. they're, they uh-huh. don't think it'll ever actually uh-huh. come out. So I think that's when you get your best material. Really. So experience wise between your two films, what was similar about them? in the construction and what was extremely different oh in the construction I was because I was going to say subject matter well subject matter is clearly different but I mean is clearly different but but I was working with a subject in the madam where she was very much open to the camera and from the first moment I picked up started filming she she was just told me her entire life story Uh you know (laughs) she was never hesitant Uh in front of the camera and I never thought of it as performing either I really thought of it she just had a story that she needed to tell and she was so excited that someone was listening to her Mm -hmm. and it wasn't like a two minute newscast with Flynn it just it really did take time I mean it took a lot more time so I couldn't it took a year before I even could start filming and then with that it just was like a, a very gradual process um, I think that's the change of maybe living in Los Angeles and like the change of like the reality, you know, the reality shows and cameras being everywhere and people well, being and social media, self-conscious even. social yeah. media. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he like I, I love that moment where he's <laughs> contemplating an Instagram of a of an hors d'oeuvre. I mean, it's well, that's yeah. amazing. One of my favorite lines of the film is when he, you know, he's like. And everything is disaster has gone down, and he's just like, "Shit, this is going to be all over the internet." Yeah, and it just it hits in a weird. It's not like, "Oh shit, this is a horrible night." But like, everyone's going to know about this. This is going to be all over the internet. And he's constantly battling this idea of kid chef, of yes. you know, I'm yeah. a gimmick. You know, these pop ups are a joke, and the, that he has to battle through that. And I love those moments where he's con- conversing with himself, seemingly about. I just got to keep doing this, and then someday I'll stop being kid chef. Yeah, and he, but he still realizes that that's why people are coming to see him or coming to eat his food. But he, he wants to get past that. That, that is the, the internal, his internal struggle for sure. Yeah. Um, before we go, biggest surprise when making Chef Lynn? Biggest surprise. Um, hmm. I think. Um, that I was able to actually eat the, that amount of food throughout oh, the process. Oh, I should have asked that immediately. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, like, because is the food good? The food the looks food, good. Yeah, the food <laughs> is amazing, and, I, and I, I had to try it, obviously, pretty close to when I met him. We, I tried it just uh-huh. to make sure it was a real deal, and then I took my entire that team. That wasn't a gimmick. I, yeah, I took our <laughs> producer and edited our whole team and went, and they tried it, but I think... I've never gone to that many tasting meals and mm-hmm. menus in my life, and mm-hmm. of course I had to try it throughout the years. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean it's amazing to see the beet dish has evolved. He had the signature beet Wellington dish that mm-hmm. it was like a now he's finally I think taken it off the menu, but occasionally uh-huh. comes back. But yeah, 
It was a lot of food to eat. Yeah, a lot of food. <laughs> well, we I like to uh, end these things by just saying, you know, like we know that making a movie is damn hard, and making a documentary year after year after year, plugging away at it, just you have to have the confidence to keep going and. You get to the end, and is there? I want you to share with our listeners the thing that you look back on over the course of Shefflin or previous doc or, or previous life experience, where you go, "Damn it, this was this was worth it. This is why I keep doing this. This is why I'm going to go on to my next film." Oh, yeah. What keeps you excited? Just ex- discovering these worlds that I would never have access to, like driving in a pickup truck with the madam, New Orleans madam across town and her pointing out these former brothels and just literally, I know every day that I spent on set behind, I mean, behind, not on set, every day I spent <laughs> behind the camera, um, I, I'm learning something new and I, yeah, I, I don't think I ever regret the time. I mean, I, I think people are always like, oh, is it boring kind of waiting for something to happen? I'm like, you're not really waiting. You're just, you're living these experiences with them. And yeah. It's just a, such a tremendous act of faith making a, a documentary, finding a subject and keeping at it. Yeah, and I've had two, at least two subjects that I've, I've filmed for two or three years that have either haven't, you know, materialized, mm-hmm. maybe will materialize one day. You kind of, I, it's also when you're doing these longitudinal documentaries, it's good to have a few projects going at the same time in case one falls, sure. falls away. So. Sure. Well, uh, our listeners, can we send you, can we send them to social media feed, a website? Where can, yeah. where can they find you? Yeah. Every, um, Shefflin.com has all the, our Instagram and uh, Twitter and everything. And then right now, Shefflin is screening on um, iTunes, Hulu, um, airlines near you, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't have an Alamo Draft House near you, uh, certainly find it on on demand. That's where I watched it. It plays great on my TV. Uh, thank you, Cameron. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for the nice talking with you. Thank you. So there you go. Yes, I really had a good time chatting with Cameron. And I am in awe of the amount of time and energy he devoted to this particular story and how he was able to carve such a compelling narrative from years and years and years of conversations with Flynn McGarry. Uh, So if you haven't already, please seek out Chef Flynn. And yeah, get yourself down to the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia, if you are in the DMV area. Even if you're not, it is worth the drive. What Andy Geyerson puts on there is phenomenal. They've got a raid double feature coming up in the not-so-distant future. I will be hosting a screening of the Chinese action film Savage next Wednesday. Uh, In the Mouth of Darkness, of course, is continuing their still awesome series celebrating the best films from the 1990s through the early aughts. And on June 16th, we will be screening Memento, the Christopher Nolan film. You do not want to miss that. And next week's episode will be another conversation that we had at the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia. But this time we'll have Billy Dasty, Indie Dork, joining us back on the show. And we're talking with filmmaker David Palomero about his movie, Murder Made Easy, as well as Dread Central author J.K. And the conversation primarily focuses on the challenges of not just making a movie, but once it's done and out there in the world, how do you sell the movie? It's not like you just drop it in a theater or you drop it on VOD and wash your hands of it. 
the real journey begins once you've put the film out there and you got to, you know, be that carnival barker for your art. And David Palomero has been a champion of his movie. And talking to him about selling it is about as exciting as our conversation that we had last year about making Murder Made Easy. So please come back to ItMod Chatcast fit channel for that conversation. And then the week after that, we're going to launch our series that we had at the Overlook Film Festival. Billy and I drove down to New Orleans and we spoke to Mick Garris about Nightmare Cinema. We spoke to Adam Egypt Mortimer about Daniel Isn't Real. We spoke to Larry Fessenden about Depraved. We spoke to Grady Hendrix about Paperbacks from Hell. And we spoke to Dr. Robin Armines Coleman, Ashley Blackwell, and Tanana Reeve Du about their film Horror Noir, A History of black horror. These are stunning conversations. I am constantly amazed that any of these people would dare to sit down with Billy and myself and really be just so generous with their time and with their thought. And uh, you are not going to want to miss a single conversation that we had at the Overlook Film Festival. So, you know, don't unsubscribe, guys. Stay subscribed. Until then, you can follow the podcast at ItModcast on Instagram and Twitter and all those places. You can follow Billy Das at WB Das on all social medias. You can follow Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren. You can follow Darren Smith at The Disco Dork, Brian Young at The Turtle Dork, and you can follow me, Brad Gullickson, at Mouth Dork on all social medias. So there you go. Until next time, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 